Amen. It's great to be with you guys again this morning. Uh, If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can go ahead and take it out this morning and open it up to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, that's where we're going to be today in our study of God's Word. And um, just appreciate so much Jonathan and the worship team leading us in worship again this morning. Hope your heart is uh, tender and encouraged and ready to receive God's Word. Uh, As you're turning to Acts 19, I just want to welcome everybody who's new with us today. Um, Whether this is your first time to UBC or maybe your first time to church anywhere, uh, whether you come here as a committed Christian or maybe a, a spiritual seeker, um, maybe you are coming today with eagerness in your heart, or maybe you're coming in with uh, some skepticism and cynicism toward the church. No matter what your background is, I just want to say I'm so glad that you're here. We are glad that you're joining us, whether you're here in person or joining us online. Thank you for listening in today. And I hope that you see that we are a church um, that really exists to help people no matter what their background is, uh, become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ who know him and make him known. That's why we're here, and I'm so glad that you're here today. So um, this is our 46th study in the New Testament book of Acts. So there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Uh, This has been an exciting study since um, since the beginning of 2022, We've been studying through this book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We've um, really taken some breaks for some topical studies and sermon series along the way. But uh, the goal is to wrap up, the goal is to wrap up our, our series through the book of Acts by the end of the summer. Um, you know, so that will, you know, that'll be about 60 sermons when we're all said and done. So today's number 46 in a series of about 60. And as we pick up in the book of Acts today, let's remember the basics of what this book is all about. This is called the book of Acts because it really details for us the actions of the Holy Spirit through the lives of the apostles in the first century. Um, The the book of Acts was written by a man named Luke. Luke was a traveling companion with the apostle Paul. And Luke set out to write uh, an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And then... um, to continue that giving of an account of the life and ministry of the early church. So really the book of Acts is the second part of a sequel. Uh, The first part of Luke's writing is the gospel of Luke in your New Testament. That really lays out the life and ministry of Jesus. And then the book of Acts is its sequel, outlining and detailing for us the ministry of the early church. And so this chronological account that Luke gives us in the book of Acts It's really broke down into three main sections. Chapters 1 through 8 serve as the first section of the book of Acts where the apostles are doing ministry uh, in and around Jerusalem. And then persecution arises in Jerusalem and they have to flee. And that takes us into the second major section of the book of Acts, which really goes from about chapter 8 through chapter 12. Um, And that is where the gospel starts to go out from Jerusalem into Jerusalem the regions of Judea and Samaria. It's there that the first non-Jewish converts become Christians. And that leads us into the third section of the book of Acts, which starts in chapter 13 and really continues on through the end of the book. Um, And this is about the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth. It leaves kind of the, the dominant Jewish regions of the day, and it starts to go out into more of the non Jewish Gentile regions of the world. And it really, that third section of the book of Acts revolves around these missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul where he's taking the gospel out. Those are the basics of the book of Acts. So as we get into 
chapter 19 today. Let's remember where we're at in the story. Uh, The Apostle Paul right now is on his third missionary journey. He's going back to the cities and the places where he went on his first two journeys. He's visiting the, the churches that were started there. If you remember, on his first two journeys, he would travel city to city, preach, people would believe, communities were formed, uh, churches would start. And now on his third journey, he's going back to those cities as well to encourage the believers there. At this point in Acts chapter 19, he is in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is on the western shore of what we would call today modern-day Turkey. Um, It's a city, Ephesus was a city that was marked by, by pagan idol worship. Um, In that city, there was a big temple to uh, the goddess Artemis, also sometimes referred to as the goddess Diana. Uh, The temple was built, then destroyed, and rebuilt multiple times through the years. And it eventually, in one of its rebuilds, became known as one of the seven wonders of the world. It was a huge structure. It was, had um, a ton of columns that were built. Everything was made of marble, And it was a a massive structure. And the legend has it that this temple was built really as a protective location for this stone that fell out of the sky from the goddess Artemis. And uh, these Greeks who practiced pagan idol worship, they they built this temple and they um, really installed priestesses to facilitate worship to Artemis in that temple. And so lots of money and trade and, um, you know, financial kind of uh, lucrative type things were all going on around the worship of Artemis right here in the city of Ephesus. And that particular backdrop is going to be important as we go into chapter 19 today, but also as we continue through chapter 19 in the couple, in the subsequent weeks. So it's into this idolatrous city that the Apostle Paul comes and he's proclaiming that worship belongs to someone else other than Artemis and the Greek gods and goddesses. He says worship belongs to Jesus Christ and he's leading many to faith. They are coming believers. He sets up shop initially for three months and preaches in a Jewish synagogue, preaching there for three months until some Jews become hostile toward him and run him out of that Jewish synagogue and After opposition rises there, he starts preaching in a different location uh, that is called the School of Tyrannus. We read about that last week, how Paul preached in Tyrannus for two years, ministering the gospel. We left off last week in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, which says this. This continued for two years. Again, that's Paul preaching in the School of Tyrannus. And it says, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, that's where we left off in the story, and that's just a a pretty, um, you know, that's a a pretty fascinating statement to read right there at the the end of verse 10. All of Asia, that's a reference to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, all of that region started to hear the word of the Lord. So what does that mean? As Paul preached for those two years, people would come, hear him in Ephesus. They would believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would then go and scatter and take that message out and about to the surrounding regions. And the gospel just started spreading out from there. So as you study the Bible and as you start to put the historical pieces together, um, there are some really cool things that you can start to put together. For instance, um, we see that during Paul's time preaching in Ephesus, during these two to three years in Ephesus, It's during that time that the church started in a city called Colossae. Paul's friend named Epaphras went there, preached the gospel. People believed. 
Paul later wrote this church in Colossae a letter that we now call the New Testament book of Colossians, right? So the church in Colossae, the letter to the Colossians, it all ties to Paul's time here in Ephesus and uh, the mighty work that God was doing there. We can also look at church history and deduce that other churches were started during this time. When you read the book of Revelation, at the beginning of the book of the Revelation, uh, several churches are mentioned there. Churches like Sardis and Smyrna and Laodicea, they, they were all um, cities where churches had started, and they were all um, right near the city of Ephesus. So we can see that these churches very likely were started during this time that Paul was ministering in this two to three year period in Ephesus. We also know that during Paul's time in Ephesus, he wrote the letter in our Bible that we now call 1 Corinthians. If you remember on Paul's second missionary journey, he went and preached in the city of Corinth, which was just across the Aegean Sea. You remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about a man named Apollos who had once been in Ephesus, but then went and preached in Corinth. And when you read the letter of 1 Corinthians, you can see that it was during his time in Ephesus that Paul wrote the letter we now call 1 Corinthians. He actually says this at the end of his letter, uh, first letter to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8 and 9, Paul writes and he says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, right? So Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. He's saying, I'm in Ephesus now. I'm going to stay here for a little bit. And he tells them why. He says in verse 9, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries, right? Typical of the apostle Paul. Doing great work for the Lord, but people are rising up against him. But a great door was opened for him in Ephesus, right? What does that mean? Very likely Paul is talking about this door that opened for him to preach for two years straight in the school of Tyrannus. He's probably talking about how even though adversaries arose, the Lord was continuing to do that mighty work and see the gospel spreading to places like Colossae and Sardis and Smyrna and Laodicea. So we left off with Paul speaking day by day um, for two years in the hall of Tyrannus, in this pagan, idol-worshiping city called Ephesus. So that's where we're going to pick up today in chapter 19. We're going to work our way from verse 11 down through verse 20 today. As we do, I'll make several teaching points along the way, and as usual, we'll bring it home with some personal takeaways for us. But the simple idea of this section of 10 verses is this. Here's the idea. Guys, don't attempt to use God. Instead, be eager for God to use you, okay? Don't attempt to use God for your purposes. Be eager for him to use you for his purposes. That's really the main lesson we're going to learn in this text today. So let's start in chapter 19, verse 11. Verse 11 starts right out and it says this, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And I just want to stop here and make one quick observation. I want you to see that God was the one doing these extraordinary miracles. Uh, it says he was doing them through the hands of Paul. But God was the one doing them. I, I just want to briefly just mention that as a reminder to us that whenever we see miracles done um, through the lives of believers, it's God who's still doing it, right? And I, I, I mention that because I think we live in a culture where people can somewhat get fascinated and interested in people who they, they believe are miracle workers, individuals. And we, 
Even sometimes when you run around in Christian circles, we can think of some Christians as having some sort of spiritual uh, gift to, uh, to do miracles or things like that. And really, at the end of the day, it is God who does the miracles through his people. And that's what he was doing through the life of the Apostle Paul here. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. Now, in verse 12, we see a really surprising way that God was doing miracles through Paul's hands. It says this in verse 12. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now that's a pretty interesting statement, isn't it? Right? I mean, pretty interesting. Uh, They take Paul's aprons and hankies, they touch sick people with them, boom, they're healed. Now, I don't know how many of you had the same experience as me, but I grew up in a church where we had hanky guy, right? He would come to church, there'd be hanky guy. And uh, I always remember it because one second he'd be blowing his nose in his hanky and the next minute he'd be waving it around saying amen. No, <laughs> I know. Nobody wanted to sit next to hanky guy, you know. Uh, and uh, that's, my, that's my view of gross hankies in the church, okay? So Paul, here's the thing. Paul's handkerchiefs and his aprons were, were probably pretty gross too. The actual literal translation of the Greek word um, for handkerchief is the word sweatbands. So if you can remember, the Apostle Paul, you know, he, he worked with his hands. He was a blue-collar worker. He was a bivocational minister. He, he built tents, right? He was a tent maker, and that's what he did to gain income. And then um, he also preached as he had opportunity to preach, right? He didn't have some little cushy air-conditioning job in a nice new building like we have here, like I have, right? He, he worked hard with his hands, so he'd get sweaty. And so, you know... Paul had these sweatbands and these headbands he'd wear and his aprons, he'd sweat from his brow and grime from his hands would get on these. And I just, you know, I imagine Paul going into work like some days to make his tents and he's like, oh, you know, yesterday I left my hanky and my apron over here. Like, where'd they go, right? And people would just come in and grab these things and take them out and touch people and heal, you know, people would be healed, you know, and I just, that's the Jason version of all that. Not inspired. Okay. But, Here's the thing, Paul is so empowered by the Holy Spirit that even his handkerchiefs and aprons could be used to make an impact for the kingdom. We read about similar things earlier in the book of Acts where Peter, if you remember, was so filled with the Holy Spirit that uh, people just wanted to be in his shadow or they believed they could be healed in the shadow. Um, But here we have the Apostle Paul's handkerchiefs being used, which is kind of interesting to me because I don't know if you've seen the tele-evangelists, you know, on TV that advertise about their healing cloths, and uh, they kind of talk about these healing cloths, and they use this story from Acts 19 to talk about how, you know, just like Paul uh, had his his prayerful, you know, or his miraculous healing cloths, like, we can do the same, and I uh, remember reading one time about a pastor who decided he was going to actually reach out to one of these tele-evangelist ministries and be like... I want to experience your healing cloth thing. And so this pastor reached out to the ministry, requested one of the, the healing cloths. It came to him in the mail with a uh, little you know, cloth square and a return envelope with a little note that said, hey, take this healing cloth, touch it to some part of your body, then return the cloth in the envelope along with a generous financial gift. All right, and... Uh, 
And it, there was an exclamation, there was like an explanation on the letter that said, this is, you're not purchasing your miracle, but your generous financial gift is, you know, symbolic of the sincerity of your faith and blah, blah, blah. Well, of course, you know, when the, the evangelist promised that when he received the prayer cloth back, that he would pray over it and the miracle would be guaranteed. Now, needless to say, this pastor that I was reading about never returned the prayer cloth and never followed up with that. But You've probably seen the televangelist type stuff that I'm talking about, and I just that's quite different than the healing cloth thing that we read about in Paul's day, isn't it? I mean, this televangelist that I just described, right, he was a charlatan. He was trying to manipulate people and to do so in the name of Jesus. Now, similar things were going on in Paul's day, and we're about to read about some of these charlatans that were trying to manipulate the name of Jesus for their purposes. We're going to read about them here in verse 13 and following. So verse 13 says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now, here we get introduced to these seven Jewish men. They are the Sons of this high priest named Sceva, they are itinerant exorcists, which means they travel around, um, and city by city, they are attempting to cast demons out of people. And I want you to notice that in this particular case, when they come into Ephesus, they would speak to the evil spirits and refer to Jesus as uh, the one whom Paul proclaims. In other words, they, they weren't proclaiming Jesus themselves, right? They didn't believe in Christ. They were imposters. They were char- charlatans. They were just trying to get on the bandwagon of the extraordinary miracles that God was doing through Paul that we just read about in verse 11, right? They didn't, they didn't know Jesus personally. They just kind of wanted to manipulate the name of Jesus for their own purposes. So they, they invoke Jesus's name. They, they use the name of Jesus like they would any other incantation, any other chant, any other thing they were doing to try to, you know, do their, their work regarding the exorcism of of demons. Now, here's the thing. They didn't know Jesus, but they wanted to use him. They didn't know Jesus, but they wanted to use him. And if you recall, Jesus, in his ministry, before his resurrection and ascension, well, you know, before our time here in the book of Acts, Jesus spoke about people like this. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 and 23, where he's talking about the last day, the day of judgment. And he says, and on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is talking about these types of guys who are in Acts chapter 19, People who are trying to work miracles in Jesus' name without knowing him or being known by him. And so that's what's going on in Acts 19, and here's what happened. Look at verse 15. It says uh, to these sons of Sceva that the evil spirit answered them, saying, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? He kind of calls them out, like, you know. And what happens next? The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Right? Like, 
every once in a while you read the Bible and you kind of chuckle. Like, that's kind of a funny little description there, right? But the reality is, yeah, on one hand it's funny, but on the other hand it's like, okay, if you were actually there and you saw this happen, like that would be pretty frightening. You just saw a single man overcome seven men. One versus seven, and the one guy won. Right? He's demon-possessed, acting in superhuman strength, leaps up, masters them. Here's the truth we need to understand. People can't overcome Satan and demons on their own. You and I can't overcome Satan and demons in our own strength. Um, I was in a situation years ago, in a prayer meeting actually, where uh, people were gathered together. And, you know, sometimes when you're in prayer meetings, you know, given the circumstances that are going on, people can become very wrapped up in their emotions and they can start to pray, but it's, it's like they don't really think about what they're saying sometimes. And I remember uh, this gentleman who was in the room with us, he prayed these words and he, he, out loud he said, Satan, you better watch out because I'm coming for you. And I remember thinking in that prayer meeting, Brother, you need to be very careful because demons don't flee from you. They flee from Jesus. So we, church family, have to understand this. Apart from Jesus, we cannot overcome Satan and demons. All authority has been given to him, right? Those who truly know him can minister in his name, but these sons of Sceva did not know him. They were trying to exercise these demons in their own strength. They tried to do this in their own power, and what ended up happening? The demon overcame them. These guys came to cast demon out of a man. The demon ended up casting them out of the house, right? That would have been a sight to see for sure. People would have been completely astonished by this. The word would have spread, and that's why verse 17 says what it says. You can read it. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So once again, we see something supernaturally powerful happen right here. And the result was that great fear fell upon the crowds. And we've seen this expression of fear falling upon the crowds. We've seen this used elsewhere in the book of Acts. You might remember way back in our study of chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira, they went and they, they sold, a, sold a field and they came and they were going to bring the money and give it back to the church, but they lied about the money. And it actually says that Satan filled their hearts and caused them to lie about this. And then what happened? He fell down and breathed his last, and he died. And it says that fear fell upon all who saw. That's a proper type of fear. It's, it's a sense of reverence and awe, right? On, on one hand, here in the book of Acts 19, you have the Apostle Paul who truly knows Jesus and doing extraordinary wonders and miracles. Uh, God is working through him to do extraordinary miracles and wonders in the name of Jesus. And then you have these other guys who are trying to use Jesus' name to manipulate it for their own purposes, and Satan overcomes them, right? The, the evil spirit overcomes them. So the crowds are starting to say that, that there's this appropriate use of the name of Jesus, and there's an inappropriate use. And fear started to fall on this crowd that ended up resulting in what? The, the reverent, proper, honoring, praiseworthy extolling of the name of Jesus. Look at verse 18. We're going to see even more detail about what this looked like. Verse 18 says that 
many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of them who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So imagine this scenario in your mind, right? The gospel is going forward in the city of Ephesus. People are becoming believers in Jesus Christ. They, they, these people who are converting and becoming believers in Jesus, they're understanding that they ought not worship Artemis or idols and that the, the idols are connected to demons and the works of Satan. And so they're turning away from this old life of idol worship and their practices of worshiping Artemis. And so they bring their, their little magic books and their incantations and their, their spells and things like that and they start tossing them in the fire to burn them. And these were valuable. Remember, these types of things were sold in and around Ephesus for, for money. 50,000 pieces of silver worth. Like, I don't, I don't know exactly how much money that would have been worth, but honestly, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that people were willing to give up things that had monetary value because they had found the supreme treasure in Jesus Christ. Why were they willing to just burn these valuable goods in the fire? Why not take them into the local village and trade them in and get some money? Why not just turn them in and make a little profit off it and Maybe do something good with that money. Give it back to the church or whatever. Here's why they were willing to destroy those things. Because they realized that these items were tools for Satan's wicked work in the world. And if they weren't good for Christians, they weren't going to be good for anybody else. So they didn't try to trade them in, sell them, or put them in somebody else's hand. They burned them. They destroyed the things that were connected to Satan's strongholds. Now, guys... I don't know if you've ever been part of anything like this in your life, but I've seen this happen a couple times in, in my 20 years in ministry. I remember one situation where we had uh, put together a bonfire night one time and we had people coming to this bonfire night and they were literally throwing into the fire things that were connected to the strongholds that Satan had previously had in their life. We had guys showing up, bringing in collections of pornography, dumping them in the fire, burned. We had people coming in, bringing... Uh, cases of music CDs. Remember when CDs used to have to be put in a case, right? Uh, and, you know, you could take those in and trade them in and make money. People brought loads of CDs filled with worldly, ungodly music, just burned them there, right? I've been in another situation. My wife and I have a friend who uh, converted and became a Christian after practicing a life uh, of Wicca. And after she became saved... After having been a practicing witch, I don't remember, Phil, you might have been here for this. We had the bonfire night, and she came, and she brought all her little incantations and spells and things that were associated with that old life of hers, and in public, in front of everybody, testified about God's grace in her life and burned those old things. Right? This is exactly what we, we see going on in the book of, of Acts. God's getting a hold of our lives, we are confessing and divulging and then destroying the things that have strongholds from our past. And I've experienced this, right? This is what's going on with these people in the book of Ephesus. So these people got serious about getting rid of these strongholds and the things associated with strongholds in their lives. Look at the result in Acts 19, verse 20. It says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Praise God. I mean, I, I bet it did. Like, you can... What do you think is going to happen when suddenly you have this like super bonfire 
most expensive bonfire in history, right? 50,000 pieces of silver worth stuff being burned here. And it's in public. It's in the town square. People are seeing it. Like, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen when people are turning away from that old life of pagan, idolatrous, Artemis worship? And now, you know, they're giving up their old life of that. Now they're starting to follow Jesus. You know what's going to happen? Jesus is going to become the most talked about person in that city. And there's going to be a buzz in town. And people are going to wonder what's going on. And other people are going to watch as their friends become Christians and they get set free from old habits and old ways. And they see their friends who used to be wrapped up in the selling of goods and making money off of Artemis worship. And now they're leaving that life behind and they're starting to follow Jesus. People would become curious about Jesus, curious about his followers. They would ask about it. And the message and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ would go gangbusters in that city, right? The word of the Lord increased, the scripture says, and prevailed mightily. Church family, don't you want to see it again? Here's the thing we have to understand. Who did it start with in the book of Acts? It started with Christians. The believers who used to have their roots in this old life came, and they got rid of all that stuff, right? They, 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 they came, they, got, they confessed, and then they destroyed. They divulged what had been parts of their old life. They divulged it, and then they destroyed it. Here's the thing. It starts, the, 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 the mighty work of God, the, the prevailing of the gospel, it starts with Christians being honest about what sort of strongholds the enemy used to have in their life and that Jesus can set you free. And I think a lot of us in the church, I think a lot of us really want the, the, the work of the Lord to go forward. We really want revival to start. We, we even want to see repentance and, and a turning of people's hearts. But here's the thing. Guys, we have got to realize it starts with us. This is where we can really struggle in the church. We all want the work of God, but we are reluctant to let it start with us. We think, oh, if, if, you know, if those people would really just get their heart right, if this person would just really do this, oh, Lord, please be at work in them. Guys, when's the last time you've really said, Lord, search me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me to the way everlasting. When's the last time you've opened your heart and said, Lord, I don't want the enemy to have any strongholds or, or kind of influences for the sake of, of sin in my life. What, what do you want to do in my heart? And when we open up our hearts like that and the Lord shows us, he starts turning up this Repentance-producing, freedom-producing. He starts turning up this, this mighty work in our own hearts that has ripple effects for the sake of the gospel. Guys, it starts in us. And so all this leads us into a few takeaways I want to share with you today. Here's the first of our three takeaways. Everybody who's here today, I want you to really get honest about who possesses you. Get honest. Who really possesses you? Because in our text, what do we see? We have three different types of people highlighted. You've got Paul, who's clearly one of God's people, has been saved. God, he is one of God's children. God possesses Paul. Then you've got this demonized man who clearly is possessed by an evil spirit. And then you've got this third group of people who are sons of Sceva, who are religious, even using the name of Jesus. But they don't know the Lord. They're just 
using his name when it's convenient for their life. So who's possessing you? What's the difference between these types of people? The difference is that Paul knew Jesus personally. Jesus knew Paul. He was one of God's own. So what about you? What about you? Are you truly possessed by Jesus today? Have, does he have full ownership of your heart? Have you turned away from your sin, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and become a child of God? Because here's the truth that everybody in this room, I, I pray that the Lord really lets you think on this today. Someone has ownership of your soul. It's either God or it's Satan. There's two options. It's one or the other. And the scripture teaches very clearly that those who believe in Jesus Christ, to those who believe in him, to those who have believed in his name, they were given the right to become children of God. Have you believed in Jesus? Trusted in him? Repented and turned to him for the forgiveness of your sins? Jesus said, as well, whoever hears my words and believes in the one who sent me, it's they that will cross over from death to life. Everybody in this room, we, we're in one of two camps. We're either possessed, owned, under the lordship and leadership of Jesus, or we are under the Lord, leadership and lordship of Satan, even if we don't realize it. Like, what a great tactic of the enemy, right? He's been the scripture says that the enemy has been a liar and a deceiver from the beginning. That's a lot of history for him to figure out how to deceive people. He's had a lot of time to figure out how to do it. And maybe one of the best ways that he can trick the world is to do what he's doing in our world today, and that is to get people to believe he's not really there. To think that his works aren't that big of a deal. Listen, Jesus came to overcome the wicked one. Jesus came to so that you can have life and through Jesus have it more abundantly. God so loved the world. He, God loves you. No matter what sort of darkness or bondage or strongholds used to be in your life, he loves you. He cares for you. He sent Jesus into the world for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus died on the cross of Calvary and then rose again three days later showing that he had power over sin and death and Satan and demons and the works of the wicked one in this world. So when you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become indwelt with the life of the Holy Spirit and you can start to live in the victory that is yours through Jesus Christ. You cross over from death to life. You become a child of God. You become one of the people, as the scripture says, the people of his possession. So who are you possessed by? Are you possessed by God? Does he have your heart? Have you opened up your heart and your life to him? Because if you haven't, you do need to understand, you are under the possession of Satan. And we live in this culture that downplays and just kind of scoffs and smirks at the idea of Satan and demons and the reality of evil and we kind of live in this culture, you know, there's nothing super serious about witches and witchcraft and idolatry and those things. They're all over our TV shows and our books, and now we even have Disney movies coming out that kind of, you know, turn this into some funny little thing. You know, this is a problem. The enemy would love to deceive this world into thinking that 
His works have no consequences. They're not real. He's not even real. If he is real, it's just children's stuff. So on one hand, we can live in this culture where people are kind of flippant about the enemy and the works of the wicked one. On the other hand, maybe you've met people like this. They just have a weird fascination with Satan and demons and occult-type stuff and violence and things that are so obviously demonic. Even people who profess to know Christ sometimes can just have this weird fascination with that stuff. Here's what I need you to know today. Here's what God wants you to know today. Satan is a killer, right? He has been the liar deceiver from the beginning. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's just waiting to see who he can devour, and he will devour you unless you found life and freedom in Jesus Christ. So it must be your, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do, you must turn away from these, uh, these things that book, the book of James, I think, is, is talking about when he says that our, our, our Christian lives can become stained by the things of the world, right? There's, there's just this stuff that can kind of stay in our life that is worldliness. It's part of the flesh. So here's the second takeaway today. Christian in this room, hear this. You need to get rid of anything that's a stronghold connection to your old life. And if you have something in your life that is just connected in some way to your previous life without Christ, and it's still got a stronghold on you, and you know it's got a stronghold on you because you're tempted to be drawn to it again, you find yourself trying to hide things, keep them secret, hoping nobody finds out, whatever it is, those things that are part of your old life of sin, you need to get rid of them. Isn't that what we see in our text today? People were found, to, found by Jesus. They were saved. They were born again. And what did they do? They divulged their, their sinful practices, and then they destroyed them. Divulge them, destroy them. That's what we happened. That's what we saw happen. They did it without this big concern about what anybody would think, right? They came and destroyed all their stuff in the middle of the public square. And that's part of what happens when you get saved and delivered and redeemed by the grace of God. Like, you know, there's this, this freeing confession of sin that says, you know what? Like, I no longer want to live in the trappings of Satan. And praise be to God, he's made a way for me to get out of that. And so you come and, in, and you realize that the God of the universe, he knows you the best and he loves you the most. He knows every part of your past, your sinful life. He knows every bit of it. And his love for you is faithful and there and relentless. He knows you the best. He loves you the most. And you know, you know what happens when you really start to believe that part of the gospel? You just become free. <laughs> I am fully known and fully loved by God my Savior. And it's freeing. And you can confess your sin and you can change by God's grace in your life. So some of you may have things right now that are on your mind. When I started to talk about strongholds, things that just kind of, you're holding on to them, but really they have a hold on you. You know they need to go. Maybe some of you are still holding on to the substances, the alcohol, the, the pills, the the stuff that's associated with your old party life, paraphernalia, other things that just, it's connected to your old life of sin. The videos, the collections, the playlists, the, 
downloads, the devices that, oh, you've done a good job of learning how to keep things really secret so nobody finds out. And if you're honest, that stuff has a hold on you. You, You're saved. You might not even like that you struggle with that, but you still haven't taken the step to destroy that stuff. Listen, don't be deceived. The enemy can use that stuff to hold, have a stronghold on your life. Some of you, it may not be something quite as tangible as what I mentioned. Maybe it's Maybe it's memories from your past that you kind of cherish in your heart. Maybe it's resentment and unforgiveness that you're still holding on to. Maybe it's old relationships. Maybe it's just something from your past that's there that if you're honest before the Lord, you're kind of secretly cherishing that and holding on to it. I want you to know today, like, Satan is going to use that stuff to keep a stronghold on your life, but God can set you free through the power of Jesus Christ. So cut off that old stuff. Confess it. Get rid of it. Divulge it. Destroy it. You know, talk to another brother or sister in Christ. Come clean. Be open about the the struggle there. And then take a step to get rid of that junk, whatever it is. Because, you know, somebody said this a long time ago. It always stuck with me. Sin is like mold. It grows in the dark. When you get something out in the open, you shine the light on it, on your sin. You know, light and darkness can't exist in the same place. So bring it out in the open. Expose the light on it and see how God will set you free. Because I believe, I still believe the Lord sets us free from our strongholds. You guys believe that? Right? I believe he wants to do it. And I believe that sometimes what holds us back in Christian ministry is that there are still strongholds of the enemy that he's holding, that he's got in our life. And so we feel hesitant to serve the Lord because we know there's still some little area of bondage. I believe Jesus came to set us free. And when he came to set, when he does set you free, you become free to serve him with a clean conscience and a pure heart. So that, that's the third takeaway I want to talk to you about. Guys, it's not just getting honest about who possesses you. It's not just getting rid of those old strongholds. It's about this. Let's get eager to see how God might want to work through us. Are you eager about that today? How might the Lord want to use you? Our text says today that God worked uh, wonders through the hands of Paul, right? That is the part of the way that God works in the world. He works through people, through the hands and the lives and the hearts and the feed of people who are serving him wherever they go, right? Paul had this surrendered heart to the Lord. He wanted to be used for God's purposes, right? He wanted God to use him. The problem is we live in a world, and I don't know how much this permeates our church, but inevitably there's probably some people here who this will hit home with. We live in a world where people are less concerned about being used by God. They're more concerned about using God for their own purposes, and so, you know, they'll, oh yeah, they'll, they'll claim the name of Jesus when they have a, they're in a crisis or they have a serious need and they'll call on him like they would call on a little servant to come and meet their needs somewhere. They'll slap a little Christian ichthus picture on their advertising so that they can make money off Christians. They'll do things like we see with these charlatans on TV who want to take advantage of people who are desperate for a miracle and they just make money off people like this. You know, that's people trying to use God for their purposes. They are like the sons of Sceva. They will be overcome by the wicked one if they don't repent. Listen, the Apostle Paul was different. 
He had surrendered his life to God's purposes. Paul wanted God to use him, and God did use him. And if you are God's people, then I want you to know this. God wants to use you too. Some of you may be held back because you've got strongholds. Jesus can set you free. Some of you may wonder if God can use you because you might feel like, I don't really have anything to offer. Let's not forget, man, Jesus took the boy who had this little five loaves and two fish. Boom, did something amazing with it. Listen, don't you think the Lord could use your, whatever your five loaves and two fish are? He can do something with it. Mary Magdalene had the past, like her past, what did, she became one of the closest followers of Jesus. Right? God can do something with you if you open your heart to him. So have you opened your heart up to being used by God? Do you long for God to, to use you? Have you ever had this moment in your life where you've said, Lord, I'm, I'm yours. My, whatever you want for my life, my life is yours. It's in your hands. I'll serve you however you call me to serve you. See, because the scripture tells us Things like this, 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. It says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose hearts are blameless toward him. Ephesians 2, verse 10 says that you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which the Lord prepared in advance so that you should walk in them. God has plans for you like you become in christ god has works for you to do things that he wants to accomplish through your life listen to me god will work through you open your heart to him he will use your mouth to tell of his salvation he will use your eyes to see where he's at work he will use your feet to take the gospel to people who need it and he will use your hands to serve other people in his name god is looking for people who want to be used for his purposes are you one of them? What's the big point from this portion of the book of Acts? Oh, church family, let's be so careful to not attempt to use God. Instead, be eager for him to use you. And I believe he will. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, are thankful again that you've given us your word so that we can learn of you and hear from you, experience you in our lives. Lord, we want you. I want you at work in this church. I want you at work in my life and in my family. I want you at work in the people of University Baptist Church. I want you at work in the people of Beaver Creek and the greater Dayton area. And use us, Lord. Use our lives to be at work in the nations of the world. So, Lord, work through us, Lord. Keep us from this proclivity to just be religious and kind of use your name when it's convenient for us. Oh, Lord, keep us from that. Open our spiritual eyes. Sharpen our spiritual senses so that we don't become dull to the trappings and the schemes of the wicked one. Awaken our spiritual senses, Lord. Awaken our spiritual man so that we don't fall prey to the schemes of the devil. I pray today, Lord, for people in this room who may have strongholds in their life that they, uh, they know need to be broken. Oh, Lord Jesus, we know that you are the one in whom we find freedom. And I pray today that you might open some people's heart towards divulging and destroying the things, the areas in which the enemy may still have a grip. Lord, would you let us be a church that is happy to see you put to death the flesh and the works of the wicked one that can sometimes remain in our life. Lord, would you do something special in someone's heart today?
If there's anybody here today who has been holding back on crossing the line of faith and repenting of their sin and believing in Jesus Christ for salvation, would you bring them across that line today to become yours and have life in Christ? I pray for those who may be struggling with areas of spiritual strongholds. Grant them the courage and the the joy, Lord, that can come from receiving your great love and living in the power of your Holy Spirit. I am excited to see, Lord, what you want to do in and through us when we fully surrender our hearts to you. So we ask you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.